Church family, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Exodus chapter 4 with me this morning. Today we are going to continue to consider the conversation that is happening between God and Moses at the burning bush. And we're also going to consider some rather strange events that happen on Moses' journey back to Egypt. But let's begin by reading the entirety of this chapter together. Exodus chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, oh, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite, I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs." Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she, that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, have you ever had a hard time making someone believe you at your word? Maybe you were trying to convince someone that you really love them or that you will do what you said that you would do or that you won't make that same mistake again or that your wife really does look good in that dress. When we speak, when we say things, most of us want to be believed. Unless we are con artists or playing two truths and lies, the words we say are generally true and we want them to be believed. My friends, the same is true of our God. The self-existent, all-powerful, all-loving, and all-gracious I am, the God of truth and grace that we have been studying in the last few weeks, he has spoken and he wants to be believed. And we see this everywhere in our text. If you read this chapter very quickly, as we just did, you should notice the, the sheer amount of words that speak about God's words being delivered by Moses to his people and from God to Moses and the need for them to be believed. Immediately in verse 1, Moses says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. And so Moses himself as a man is having a hard time believing God's words to him. And so he is even more doubtful about how to make the Israelite people that believe that God has spoken to him. And then God gives Moses miraculous signs to perform. Why? Why miraculous signs? So they will believe his words through Moses. Verse 5, verse 8, that they may believe. God wants his words through Moses to be believed. Church, God's word is trustworthy and true. Amen? His word is for our good. He wants us to believe what he says, to trust him at his word. And even when we struggle to believe him, even when we refuse at times to believe him, God himself helps his people to believe. He will be believed at his word because he knows that to believe him at his word is what you and I need most in all of life. The I am 
the self-existent God that we have been studying, this God has spoken and He leads us towards deeper and stronger and sweeter trust and belief in Him. He'll have it no other way. It's actually our main idea this morning. The main idea is this. God has spoken so that we can and will believe and worship Him. God has spoken so that we can and will believe in Him. And we have three points. Number one, God has spoken. Number two, God wants to be believed. And point number three, God will be worshipped. Let's look at the first point. Point number one, God has indeed spoken. This is a statement that we as Christians can become overly familiar with, right? These three words, God has spoken. They should astonish us. They should amaze us. But yet we often hardly even respond to them. But this is one of the greatest realities in the world because as we have seen last week, a God who is self-existent, a God who is not dependent on anyone or anything in this world, he does not need to enter into relationship with anyone. He's perfectly happy within himself, but yet he has spoken. And in speaking, he says that he wants to be known. Have you ever been at a party where where you don't know anyone at all and everybody else seems to know each other. And so you stand there in the corner just by yourself and seeing everybody fully content in themselves. But then there's that moment when somebody comes over and says, hi, I'm, I'm Beth, or hi, I'm, I'm John. And they, they start a conversation together. Th- those moments are particularly meaningful and kind because we know that they did not need to enter into that conversation with us. They already had friends to talk to. Church, the fact that our God has spoken, as simple as it sounds this morning, it should astonish us. The fact that he speaks to Moses in this conversation is remarkable because he didn't need to speak. He could have remained silent, but he didn't. He opens his mouth and he speaks to Moses. And he has done so in order to be in relationship with his people. And we know this of our God. From the very beginning, we have seen that our God is a God who speaks and and wants to be in relationship with his people, right? In Genesis chapter 1, God creates this universe through the power of his words as he speaks creation into existence. But then, throughout the rest of Genesis, God speaks even more personally to his people, to Adam and Eve, and to Abraham, and to Isaac and Rebekah, and to Hagar in the wilderness with her child, and to Jacob, and to Joseph, and to Judah. He, he didn't stop speaking, and he didn't even stop speaking even though he was silent for 400 years. He kept his word to Israel throughout their time in Egypt. We have seen how he continued to bless them. And then, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses stumbles on the burning bush in the wilderness, and it says in verse 4 of chapter 3 that God called to Moses out of the bush. He called to him with words, and then he enters into a conversation with him. Folks, consider our chapter today, chapter 4 alone. Consider how conversational God is with Moses. 
This is simply astonishing that the sheer amount of times that God chooses to speak to Moses and to help him to understand his word is amazing to us. His his patient communication should astound us. Verse 2, the Lord said. Verse 3, and he said. Verse 4, but the Lord said. Verse 6, again, the Lord said to him. Verse 7, then God said. Verse 8, God said. Verse 11, then the Lord said. Verse 14, and he said. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, verse 22, then the Lord shall say, it just goes on and on. Church, don't forget how amazing this is. Our God, the one that we worship this morning, is a speaking God. And he doesn't just speak commands and rules into our lives like a a cruel taskmaster or boss or manager. No, he speaks love and hope into our lives. He speaks redemption into our lives. Friends, consider, consider with me all the things that you and I try to listen to throughout our days and throughout our weeks, which are not God. All the voices in the world that we value which are not God and which in comparison to God have nothing to say of value in our life at all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 2 that before we became Christians, we were led astray to to mute idols however we were led. The, The things that we devoted ourselves before becoming Christians, and sadly, oftentimes, the things that we devote ourselves to even now and where we place our affections, they are so often mute and dumb idols. They cannot speak to us like our God can speak to us. And when God sees us, Friends, when God sees us devoting ourselves to, to idols and to false gods that cannot speak, it makes no sense to him at all. God looks at us and he says, why? I'm here and I have spoken to you. My word can be trusted. You don't need to worship silly idols which do not speak. They're, they're mute and they're dumb. God, God says to us through his word, worship me. And worship me by listening to me and the good that I have for you. I've spoken very clearly. I'm different from all the other gods around you. They cannot, they will not compare to me. Some of you know my, my Polly Pocket story from many years ago. Okay, this is probably 10 years ago when both my daughters were really little. They loved Polly Pockets. Do you guys know what Polly Pockets are? Yeah, they're little plastic dolls. They've got clothes and the whole towns that you can make. The only problem is that Polly Pockets are pretty expensive, and we didn't have much money. And so Ashley was always on the search for ways to find them on the cheap. And so she found on Craigslist, some of you don't even know what that is anymore. It's Facebook Market in the old days. Craigslist, there was $500 worth of Polly Pockets available for $20. And so Ashley and I took a date night to go and drive into New Jersey to get these Polly Pockets for Allie's birthday. And so we went... And we drove the whole way, but the only problem was was we got a little confused along the way. And so I ended up going up to the wrong house. I thought it was the right house, but it was the wrong house. I knock on the door, and I'm telling you, this this monster of a man comes to the door. He must have been 6'5". He probably weighed 280. He had a big beard. He looked like a lumberjack of a man. And he's holding a beer in one hand and a phone in the other. And you would have thought that I would have known I was at the wrong house. But, but me and my confident, normal self was just like, hey, dude, you got the Polly Pockets? And he's just like, what are you talking about? 
What is wrong? Why is this grown man at my door asking for little dolls? He didn't have a category for it. But church, listen, I can imagine that that is the way, the, the way that he looked at me is the way that God looks at us when we give ourselves to listen to, to dumb and mute idols. It makes no sense to him. It's so confusing. But this is what we do. If you came to my house later today and you found me on the floor playing with the dolls, you would be concerned. It's cute when kids do it, but we shouldn't do it because it's not real life. But so often, this is how we live. We start having conversations with the idols of our hearts as if they are what can truly care for us when they absolutely cannot. We can listen to the culture around us. We can listen to talk radio and to sports radio more than we listen to God himself. We can listen to the idol of money and give ourselves to it. We can listen to the idol of sex. We can listen to the idols of power and fame and popularity as if they can really meet our needs. And God is looking at us and he's saying, those are polypockets compared to who I am. Our God is the one true and living God, and he alone has the words of eternal life. He alone knows what is right and good. And so even as we study an Old Testament text like Exodus chapter 4, let our hearts be encouraged. He's not far off. He's very near. Through his word and through his spirit, he wants to speak to you. An application here is, is for us to listen. Church, how are you listening to the Lord these days? How are you giving your ear to, to hear his voice more than any other voice in your world? I think an application just from seeing how he speaks is how you're doing at devotions. Finding a time to read God's word. You don't need to read for hours. Finding five, ten minutes to say, God, I need to hear from you in my life. How are you doing at prioritizing Sunday morning? where you can hear a whole chapter be read and then a whole nother chapter be read and preach. How are you doing at giving yourself to, to Bible study and fellowship group or starting a discipleship group around the word? Our God is a speaking God and his words are life for our souls. May we give ourselves to him. But his word is not just for our minds. His word is for our hearts and for our souls. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, God wants to be believed. God not only wants his words to be heard with our minds, he wants his word to be believed in our hearts. So much, in fact, so much, in fact, that he not only speaks to Moses and to his people, but, but he gives them miraculous signs with his word in order to help them to believe his word. And we know this because he says that he gives these signs for this reason. In verse 5, he says that they may believe. And so in verse 2, God tells Moses, throw your staff on the ground. And we're going to talk more about the significance of Moses' staff in future weeks. But for now, God makes his staff turn into a snake. And then he tells Moses to grab it by the snake. And after Moses runs away quickly because he's afraid, he comes back and he grabs it. There's a little bit in the text that seems to say that he was still fearful when he grabbed it. But why a snake? Well, because snakes were often an Egyptian symbol, right? Picture any of the pharaoh crowns that you've seen in your history books. It almost always has a snake on it. So God is showing Moses his ability to grab Egypt by the tail and to control them through Moses. 
And then verse 6, God tells Moses to put his hand in his cloak, and it comes out diseased with leprosy. And then God tells him to do it again, and it comes out whole and healed. It's, it doesn't seem like there's any, uh, any significant uh, message behind this other than the fact that God has the power to heal and to make whole. Leprosy was everywhere in Egypt in that day, and so it was an incurable disease that would have destroyed lives. And so to see the power of God to heal would have been very encouraging to the Israelites. The third sign that is given, God tells Moses that if the Israelites do not believe the first two, that he should take water from the Nile and pour it out, and it will be turned into blood. And this sign would have been very meaningful to the Israelites because the Nile was the source of life and power in Egypt. It was where Egyptians believed their, their strength and power came from. And so for Moses to come to the Israelites to say, God has spoken to me and let me demonstrate his power and take a source of life and strength of the Egyptians and pour it on the ground as a sign of death and judgment in blood, that would have been significant. All these things are powerful ways that God's saying, my word can be trusted, but but we see in verse 10 that Moses continues to doubt. In fact, Moses here is it's worse than doubt. In verse 10, we see Moses actually getting impatient with God. It's, it's quite something to see. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past, listen to this, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is actually frustrated that in the very short period of time since God has started talking to him, which is probably just a few minutes since he stumbled on the burning bush, in that short time, God has not already given him supernatural ability to speak. Moses ignores all of the signs that God has already done. The, the burning bush, God speaking from the burning bush, the staff being turned into a snake, his hand being cured of leprosy. God, God's already done all these things, but yet Moses is still impatient with God. Why? Because he is so focused on believing in himself. He thinks that the strength for what he's being called to do is going to be found within himself. He's got his eyes inward rather than outward. Verse 13, because of that, he knows he doesn't have the strength. He says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. He doesn't believe God at his word. He's believing in his own ability rather than in God's ability. Christian, are you going through something right now that in trying to figure it out, you are looking more at your own wisdom and your own discernment and your own strength rather than at God's? God invites you to turn your eyes away from yourself to him. We must not trust in ourselves. We're not good enough, but he is. It's actually in this moment that the Lord gets angry with Moses. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is significant because we know from Exodus chapter 34 and other parts of God's word, the God we worship is slow to anger. He's slow, he's patient. His anger is not quickly kindled. He's not explosive in his anger but it's kindled here because Moses is so stuck in his unbelief. Moses' eyes are so on himself rather than on the God who is right before him. God's anger here shows how much he wants to be believed at his word. To believe him, it's for our good. It's for our joy. And so God actually gets angry and frustrated when we don't believe him because it does harm to us. And it's a claim that he's not trustworthy. 
But even here, in God getting angry, he is still merciful towards Moses. He does not turn his back on Moses. He doesn't say, all right, Moses, we're done. I'll find somebody else. Fine. His anger is kindled, but he immediately responds with mercy. He meets Moses in his fear and tells him, okay, Moses, I will bring Aaron, and Aaron will help you in your weakness as well. God is merciful despite Moses' unbelief because God wants to be believed. And so, church, in all of this, we see how much God cares for you and me. He, he wants us to believe him at his word. He wants us to believe so much that he seeks to help us to believe even when we continually ignore him. And friend, maybe you read this and you say, well, well, if I had been given signs like that, I would have, been, I would have believed. Maybe you're a skeptic of Christianity. Maybe you are a Christian, but you struggle with doubt in your faith. And maybe you have said the words, well, if only God would give me the sorts of signs that he gave to Moses and to the Israelites, then I would find it easy to put my trust in him. But friends, he has done this for us. Not, not only does God at times do miraculous signs like this among us, because we can all recall when he has miraculously accomplished the seemingly impossible in our lives. He has provided that job for us. He has healed that disease. He has broken that addiction. He has sustained us through that trial. He has restored that relationship. God is a miracle-working God, and he performs these miracles among us all the time. We believe that he does. We celebrate that he does. But he not only speaks to us in those ways, he also speaks to us in other miraculous ways. Talking about the speech of God, Psalm 19 says that God is speaking to us at all times through the, through the world that is around us. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Scripture is emphatic about how the world around us is the very speech of God. The theological word for this is general revelation. God has made himself known through the order of the universe. The stars and the sun and the rotation of the planets and the intricacies of our bodies and the beauty of a flower. All of it is God speaking to us. All of it is God saying, I'm here and you can trust me. Look at how consistent I am. Romans chapter 1 says that creation reveals the nature of God. We learn from creation. We learn that he's always speaking and that he wants to be known. But friends, we don't just have general revelation. We also have specific revelation. We have our Bibles. Church, listen, this book is true. It is historically reliable. There is more reason to believe the historical reliability and the miraculous power of this book than all of the other historical documents, the ancient documents combined. The miracle of him preserving his word for us in this way is an astonishing thing. But friends, that's not even all. He's done even more than miraculously helping you through that trial. He's done even more than speaking to you through creation. He's done even more than preserving his word in your Bible. All of these are signs and wonders to help us to believe. But do you know what the greatest sign of all is? The greatest sign of all is that he has spoken to us through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Prophets like Moses, 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In John chapter 1, verse 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Church, he's spoken and he wants to be believed. He has sent signs and wonders with his word to win your heart to him. But maybe as much as you see that God wants you to trust his word, maybe you are at a place today where you are saying that you cannot because of how much it feels like he has broken his word to you. Maybe you want to believe him at his word, but you don't think that you can because it seems, it feels like he has failed you so severely. My friend, just because God has not spoken into your life in exactly the way that you want him to, that does not mean that his word is not still perfectly trustworthy. You know, my kids have at times joked with me by saying that I am not a very trustworthy dad. And they say that they have a hard time trusting me because of how I deceived them when they were little and they needed a tooth to be pulled from their mouths. I used to love these moments. They, were, they came nervous and they're like, Dad, don't touch it yet. Just, just look at it. And I'm like, okay, come here, come here, come here, come here. And I would just come up close and then I'd just flick it and it would fly away. But there were a few times when it wasn't quite as loose as I thought that it was. And so it hurt a little bit more, and so they were a little bit traumatized. And so they like to, to joke with me that I'm not a trustworthy father, that I deceived them intentionally. Listen, I know that this is not a perfect illustration because I actually did lie to them, and God never lies to us. But the reality is that they still trust me now because even though there were those painful moments, I have proved myself faithful to them over time. Friends, just because there has been pain in your life, just because you have gone through those trials, that does not mean that your heavenly Father does not love you or that he cannot be trusted in your life right now. He has proven his love for you, and he's proven it far greater than any earthly father ever could. He has proven his love to you by sending his own son into the world to die your death for you. He is trustworthy and true. He wants to be believed. He wants to be trusted, and he has proven that he is trustworthy, and so we can give ourselves to him in every area of life. Amen. But even with all of that said, isn't it true that apart from his sovereign work in our lives, we will still not believe him at his own word? Isn't it true that even with the miraculous sign of his love in the gospel and on the cross, isn't it true that we still need help to believe? Isn't it true that unless he works in our lives that we will continue to worship dead idols rather than the one true and living God. But praise God that he will not leave us in that place. Praise God that he refuses to allow his people to remain in their sin and he mightily works on their behalf. And that brings us to our third point. Point number three, God will be believed. He will be worshipped. God will be Worship, to, to truly believe God, to trust him with your life, friends, it is to worship him. We see this at the very end of the chapter in verse 31. It says, and the people believed, and at the very end it says they bowed their heads and worshiped. 
Listen, theology, knowledge of God, right knowledge of God, we learned in James chapter 2 today that demons believe in him, but they do not worship him. Right knowledge of God, humble knowledge of God, leads to doxology, to the worship of God. The study of God or the, the right belief about God will inevitably lead us to worship him. And we see it throughout his word. We see it in chapter 34 when God says, I'm going to pass before you and proclaim my name to you, Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. And he finishes it and says, Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped him. We see it in Isaiah 6 with the seraphim in heaven and Isaiah as they give glory to God saying, holy, holy, holy. We see it when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and they realized that he was king over creation. It says that they worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Right belief and trust in God will inevitably lead to worship of God. And God is committed to this for his people because he knows that in his presence there is fullness of joy, church. He knows that with him there is delight and happiness forevermore. He knows that he possesses the words of eternal life. He knows all of this and he wants it for us. But the problem is that even when God speaks to us and offers this to us, offers the greatest treasure in all the world, we seldom, no church, we never take him up on the offer in ourselves apart from Christ. Isn't this true? We do not naturally trust the Lord. Our nature apart from him is to not believe in him. We need his help in order to even see him as the treasure of greatest value and to believe him rightly and to delight in him and to worship him. We can't choose to worship him on our own. Why? Because of sin. Sin has destroyed our ability to believe on our own, and we can see it right in the text. Even though God is very patient and very kind to give signs and wonders to Moses and to the Israelite people, the very need for signs and the very need for miraculous works, it, it's a statement about the nature of their souls. It's actually an indictment against them. They, they should have trusted his word right immediately, but they didn't. They, they needed signs. Why? Because of sin and the hardening effects of sin on their hearts. Jeremiah 17 says that the heart, your heart apart from Christ, is deceitful above all things. Romans chapter 3 says that none is righteous, no, not one. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Sin has destroyed our ability to trust God. We were made with free will. Adam and Eve had free will, but that free will fell into sin, and ever since, that free will has freely chosen sin again and again and again. We see it even more clearly in what God says about Pharaoh. Look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What we see in this is that because of our sin, God 
is involved even in our ability or inability to believe. What we see here is that God at times chooses to soften our hardened hearts like he did for Moses and for Israel. He at times enables our sinful hearts to come alive in order to believe, and at times he doesn't. That the same miraculous signs are going to be done to Israel and to Pharaoh, but they only work on the Israelites. God, God actually says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? What does that it mean that God will harden his heart? Does it mean that God is refusing to let someone who wants to believe, he is refusing to allow them to believe, that he's simply not chosen them, and so he shuts down their desire? Or does it mean that Pharaoh had already chosen to not believe, just as all of us had chosen not to believe, and God is simply choosing not to help Pharaoh to believe as he does for others. Friends, this is what we are going to see throughout the next 10 or so chapters in this book. Sometimes the text will say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it will say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes it will just say that his heart was hard and without citing any cause for it. But what this reveals is that our hearts, apart from God's grace, apart from the work of the gospel, they are hard. They don't have the ability to believe without help from God himself. It's a biblical mystery exactly how God's sovereignty and man's free will are tied together. But mysteries are not always bad. Mysteries speak of the vastness of our God. He cannot be easily explained. What is clear from God's word is that Pharaoh's heart was hard Not because of God's work alone, but because Pharaoh, like all of us, had chosen his own way apart from God. See, I think at times we think about God's sovereignty over our salvation. I think we have a wrong view of what this means. When we start thinking about how God chooses to soften some but not all hearts, that can be confusing to us. We can actually have a a view of God like he is standing at the gates of heaven, with his arms folded and angry looking down and all of humanity is looking up, banging on the doors of heaven saying, please, let us come in. We want to be in relationship with you. But like a grumpy uncle or, or grandfather, he's like, no, I don't want all of you in here. I'm just going to take, take a few of you. Not you, not you, not you. Yeah, okay, I guess I'll take you. I guess That's such a distorted view of what the gospel is. The picture is rather that God himself is standing at the gates of heaven with his arms wide open saying anyone who believes in me will be saved. But the picture the Bible teaches is that every one of us apart from him is running in the opposite direction. We're hell bound in our sin. Our sin has deceived us and we've chosen our own way apart from him. And unless he intervenes for us, we are damned in our sin. And so in his great mercy, he has said, I do not want all to perish. And so I will save some to myself. I will save you. I will give you a new heart, even though it has nothing to do with you. You're not smart enough. You're not godly enough. It's not because you're kind. It's not because you go to church. It's not because you give. I love you because of the freeness of my grace. I could judge you, but I'm bringing you into my family. This is God's sovereign electing grace. And what does it do for us, church? It makes our hearts explode with joy. It makes our hearts worship him in spirit and in truth because we know that apart from him, we'd be gone. But he has been kind towards us and gracious towards us in his great love. It's a humbling, humbling, humbling reality. A lot of people think that that the sovereignty of God 
makes us proud. That we somehow can puff our chest, chest up and say, look at me, God chose me, not those other people. If that is you, you need to let us the exact opposite response to God's sovereignty that we should have. The response to this richness of grace is humility and lowness of spirit. Look at verse 23. God describes Israel as his firstborn son. Is it a gift to be the firstborn son? Yes. Is it a privilege? Is it a joy? Are there blessings in that? Yes. But how silly for a firstborn child to brag about being the firstborn child. Hey, I was born before you. Look at me. You had nothing to do with it. You're just born. Stop. How silly for us to think that God's electing grace makes much of us. It should have the exact opposite effect. It should make much of him. This is our God. He will be believed. He will not allow everyone to perish. He will cause some of us to have new hearts which see his beauty and his worth and who put our, our trust in him fully for the salvation of our souls. Now, some people have major concerns about the sovereignty of God. They believe that if God is the one who chooses whose hearts will be hardened and whose will not, if he is in control of all things, why, why do we need to do anything? A lot of people say that God's sovereignty and salvation steals our need to be evangelistic in particular, and it steals any burden to pursue holiness and godliness in life. But both of those things could not be farther from the truth. In this text, up in verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, O Lord, my God, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Listen, Moses, like, like all of us, like Jared was sharing earlier, he was fearful to speak on God's behalf to the world around him. Moses, like all of us, doesn't know what will happen if he puts himself out there and evangelizes and speaks of this God. If he shares the good news, will he say, share it rightly? Will he say it accurately? He's not eloquent, and so he says, God, sends someone else. But look at what God says. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's made us. Verse 12, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely in control. He's made every part of your being. He's made your mouth. He has formed you. He, he is so sovereign, he could have delivered Israel from Egypt by just lifting a finger from the throne of heaven, but he didn't. He chose to work through Moses, and he says, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth. The salvation, the sovereignty of God over salvation does not steal evangelism from the church. We should not sit back. We should actually go with greater confidence and courage because we know the sovereign God is behind us working on our behalf. And God's sovereignty also fuels our obedience and holiness. You look at this strange passage Starting in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. What in the world? 
we don't know exactly what this text is, but it seems clear that Moses failed to circumcise his son. And circumcision is the most fundamental act of obedience for the Israelite people. It is a sign of being in covenant relationship with God. And so as sovereign as God is, as much as God says to Moses, I've made you and I'm going to use you, he still calls Moses to respond with obedience and humility. And so Zipporah worked on her husband's behalf, does the circumcision, touches Moses' blood with it, and it is a, a sign of, of, of the obedience being done. And it says, so he let him alone. Obedience matters. God's sovereignty does not give us a free pass to sit back and say, well, if we're going to be a godly husband or a godly wife, he's going to do that in me. If God wants me to stop looking at pornography, he's going to make that happen. No, he calls us to obedience and to walk the road set before us by his grace. This is what was read again in James chapter 2 earlier. Faith, belief in this one true God, it comes with works. It is not by works, but inevitably leads towards works. The sovereign salvation that God has graciously given, it should transform our lives because of the joy and gratitude that we feel for him and the work that he has done. We should turn and give our entire being to follow hard after him. Friends, this text and what we are going to begin to study, it has great comfort and strength for our souls. Uh, you are not alone in your journey. Though you may feel like you are not eloquent or powerful or strong, just as Moses did not feel about himself, God is the one who made you, and God is the one who is for you. And in his great sovereignty, he has worked on your behalf, and his sovereignty cannot be defeated. He is the man of war, and his will will be accomplished in our lives. Would you stand with me as we pray?